Welcome to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about creativity, community, and career. I'm your host, Janet McKenna-Lowry. Today I'll have the second half of my delightful conversation with Gabrielle Gould, Executive Director of the Amherst Foundation and the Business Improvement District. But first, let's look at a book called Humankind by Rutger Bregman. Rutger Bregman, a Dutch historian, got my attention a few years ago when he went to Davos, which is the World Economic Forum, and told the mega billionaires there that if they would just pay their taxes, a lot of the world problems would be solved. He said, quote, we've got to be talking about taxes, 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 taxes. All the rest is BS in my opinion. I feel like I'm at a firefighters conference, but I'm not allowed to talk about water. And the attendees clutched their ropes of pearls in horror, so shocked. They got right back into their private jets and went, la, 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 I can't hear you, and stuck their fingers in their ears. So then, the awful Tucker Carlson called him to sort of presumably troll the rich as if he's not. And Carlson couldn't handle... Bregman's criticism of Fox. Bregman told him that Carlson was a millionaire funded by billionaires and was part of the problem, which he totally is. It's Tucker Swanson Carlson. The man is an heir to the Swanson frozen dinner fortune. So at that point, Carlson cursed Bregman out, like recorded, and then refused to air the interview. But Bregman had recorded it himself And so he just released it and it went viral. So the man pisses off the super rich. He pisses off propagandists. So when I also heard that he has a compassionate, optimistic view of humanity, that was the trifecta for me. And I started with humankind. A lot of the book is a setup of common knowledge only to find that the underlying stories or even scientific studies were in fact fudged or outright setups and lies. And he contrasts that and compares it to our philosophic assumptions about who we are as humans. What is our very nature? And a lot of those theories, a lot of those philosophies are not fundamentally true. They're not borne out even in the experiments that purport to show, to prove them. Our fundamental nature is one of cooperation. But it's built on a few impulses that can be distorted by propaganda, greed, and power into horrific acts. Humans are substantially better than we give ourselves credit for. We're not perfect, but we are much, much better than we believe. I'm a big fan of the Enlightenment. I've always had maybe bought into the narrative that it made our lives better. It it certainly unlocked a lot of thought, it unlocked the idea that if religion is not what guides the world, maybe we can just figure out by observing and by making theses. It's it's a scientific method, right? But it also brought with it the idea that we are essentially meat robots. And that mischaracterization has been baked into systems that unsurprisingly treat us like meat robots and dehumanizes us all. Because What came up alongside the Enlightenment is our current incredibly toxic runaway capitalism. There was 
capitalism before it, but it comes about at about the same time. We are not happy when we are treated like meat robots. We are not happy when we are dehumanized. But it's hard to both believe that and resist it in the same way that a fish can't really figure out polluted water. The system uplifts corrupt authorities, and so those authorities want to keep that system in place. Bregman uses the philosophers Thomas Hobbes, who morphed that religious inherent sinfulness of humans into a non-religious enlightenment-speak parallel version, to Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who thought that before we as a species became quote-unquote civilized, our nature was cooperative. And he uses these as jumping-off points, which is just as well, because Rousseau was pretty inconsistent in his views a small digression. He was a fish who operated in the same dirty water of unbelievably racist concepts, fed into that noble savage distorted archetype, and was the supreme deadbeat dad who not only abandoned his children in an orphanage, but then to add insult to injury, wrote an entire treatise on nature-based child rearing and named it after one of his abandoned kids. But anyway, Bragman uses sort of the Hobbesian frame of mind and the Rousseau frame of mind as stand-ins for these polar opposite concepts. Humans are bad and you can't trust them, and humans are pretty great if you don't screw them up. And then he lays out the evidence. I am a bit conflicted because there's an aspect of the evidence and there's an aspect of these examples that he does that reads a lot like Freakonomics which was a fun exercise originally that would start off with, hey, conventional wisdom doesn't hold up to scrutiny, and here's why. But with Freakonomics, it ended up really as pretty much unsubstantiated back-of-the-envelope clickbait with a lot of certainty. So I do appreciate that unlike Freakonomics, Bregman is careful and very well-referenced. Having introduced us to the topic that humans have a well-known bias toward the negative, which is why news is unremittingly grim, despite things like crime rates plummeting and poverty being alleviated, news actually hijacks our instinct to see the negative for survival reasons, and survival reasons are often tied up in trauma, reasonably enough. So because of that, we naturally pay a lot more attention to bad things than good, but that gives us a very distorted view of each other and of reality. Okay, so bad things are newsworthy. They align with that Hobbesian idea that we are festering cesspools of a-holery. But if you are a realist, a real realist, you will find that the data doesn't support you. Lord of the Flies, the epitome of our nature is competition until death. That book that we in the U.S. are often required to read as the age of the children in it was entirely based on the distorting environment of an early 20th century English boarding school, and it was written by a man who hated teaching and hated the boys. When it really happened to a similar group of boys, private school students in Tonga, shipwrecked for 15 months on an island, they cared for one another, they helped each other, and they created an equitable government between themselves. 
they stayed good friends and became lifelong friends with the guy who rescued them. Bregman calls this homo puppy, as in beyond homo sapiens that we think and are human, we are in fact kind of puppy-like. We look at each other for approval. We want to cooperate and please each other when possible. We want fair play and fun play. Fair play is a concept that I believe begins right around the time that children get to be lingual, within a very short time after understanding language, or if the child has linguistic issues, it's around two or three. It's very, very young when we have a really good sense of fair play, because that is actually our innate nature. When we're really together, it's incredibly rare that even in wartime, we shoot or kill each other. Face-to-face combat has about a 30% shoot rate. Most soldiers will miss or shoot up in the air or shoot to the side. Not all the time, and we'll get to that, but most of the time. It's one of the reasons bayonetting was phased out. It was very hard to get soldiers to do that to other people. I've talked before about how notorious the social sciences are with unrepeatable experiments, but Bregman comes with the receipts. Stanley Milgram's shock experiment, Philip Zimbardo's prisons, Stanford prison experiment, made their careers, put them at the pinnacle professionally. They both, I don't know if Milgram's still alive, but Zimbardo has been thriving off of his experiments about how people are inherently terrible. They're not only not replicable, which is what science requires, but those authors' own experiment notes show that they fudged the data in the first place. They used intimidation and manipulation to force the quote-unquote perpetrators to be terrible people when they really did not want to. They overcame through intimidation the resistance of people to become bad to other people. Participants were largely forced, fooled, or convinced that they were doing something good for science in order to continue. And a famous victim of the prison experiment told them he didn't like this and he needed to study for exams. And Zimbardo told him no, he, he wasn't allowed to. He had to stay. And the only reason he'd be released is if he was in extreme distress. And so he put on a show. And that is the clip that's used all over the place. That guy's still alive. You can talk to him. And when you do, he says, yeah, I wanted to get out of it. So I screamed and cried. So so both sides of this. In the Milgram experiments, there was no victim there. They were actors screaming from the other room. Because they the idea was that the person in room A was shocking was was electrical shocking uh, the victims in room B. And those people kept saying, I don't want to do this anymore. He sounds like in some real pain. That person sounds like they're in terrible pain. I don't want to do this anymore. And the experimenters had instructions to constantly override them. That does not prove that we are bad people. It proves that we can be forced to be bad people. And that's a very different thing. He also covers, and this is very interesting to me because I've known this case for a long time, Kitty Genovese. Genovese, I'm not sure quite how to pronounce it. 
a young woman who was stabbed to death in the 1960s and people the idea is that bystanders did nothing people opened their curtains closed their curtains did nothing that too is a lie and again these people are still alive and you can talk to them some of them did call the police and were told okay we're on it but then that wasn't reported a lot of them couldn't quite see what was happening and to some extent some of them felt like oh we don't want to flood clearly the police have been called we don't want to flood the lines and have a you know make it worse for them there was a lot of mitigating circumstances that are just how you would expect to have happen on an evening where you're not totally sure what's happened outside but it sounds bad so you called the police people did exactly what they should have been doing people went down to check out what had happened nothing like what the stories were but the narrative wanted to fit so hard into that idea that we are bad at heart and that people are rotten and deserve everything terrible that happens to them. He goes on, World War I was one of the most horrifying and pointless conflicts we have ever had. There's literally no reason for it. But most of the bullets fired did not hit a target. And beyond that, for a couple of early Christmases, the enemy combatants joined together for carol singing and present exchanges. It was noteworthy. People wrote home about it. There are movies and books about it. It was nothing short of miraculous, and most people found it so. Although, on record, an Austrian corporal named Hitler was pissed off about it. Finally, the generals, miles behind the front lines, told the troops that if they fraternized with the enemy, they'd be court-martialed and shot. And still, soldiers sometimes sent bomb warnings to those on the other side, both sides, who are now their friends. And Bregman says, and I absolutely love it, for even in wartime, there is a mountain of peace below the surface. Generals, politicians, and warmongers have to draw on every means at their disposal from fake news to sheer force humans are simply not wired for war because the more you give the more you have and that's true of trust it's true of friendship and it's true of peace so we are much better than we give ourselves and each other credit for but not always so how exactly does that work? Pretty much like it did in those experiments or in modern warfare. Remove us from our victims with distance, and we're much more likely to follow orders than we are when we can look our fellow human beings in the eye. Give us a steady diet of dehumanization and propaganda. Add a hefty amount of authority, fear, and suddenly, Homo Puppy becomes a lot less cute and a lot less happy, ending up attacking anyone we see as different. Time and time again, real people in the room with real people act surprisingly well to each other. 
But when distance and power and money get involved, that's when the beatdown starts. And those doing the beating and those being beaten both pay a terrible price. But power for someone in the equation is preserved or restored and the world goes on. Or, and here's a hopeful message in a book absolutely full of them, we change the game and we use propaganda to bring us all together instead. In 2010, the government of Colombia hired an ad agency to spread the message that guerrilla fighters could just stop if they wanted to. They, they had been in the jungle fighting for, I think at that point, a couple decades. But they would be given amnesty and job training. So the first year, the agency put Christmas trees lit by a motion detector all over the jungle with a message that said, if Christmas can come to the jungle, then you can come home, demobilize. At Christmas, anything is possible. And hundreds did. The next year, they asked family members of the remaining guerrilla fighters to write them letters saying, come home, we're waiting for you. And they put those letters in little lit ornaments in jungle rivers. More returned home. The next year, they asked for baby pictures from the guerrilla fighters' mothers. Then they hung those baby pictures all over the caption with, Before you were a fighter, you were my child. And of course, the only people that would ever recognize these photos were the people in them. And hundreds more returned. We've gotten here believing that people are selfish, uncivilized, and cruel at heart. But we know that it's really hard to get us to feed those things. And under the surface, we want to be good to one another. It changes, or should change, how we tolerate our systems and institutions that are in place now. Bregman says, you know, he doesn't like self-help books, but here are 10 things to be aware of in your world. So that you're not being pushed into directions that are bad for you and bad for all of us. Number one, assume the best. We do not ever really know what another person is experiencing at any given time and hurt people hurt people. And rather than feeling shame when our expectations are dashed, rather than being cynical, he says, if you've never been conned, your basic attitude, your basic instinct isn't trusting enough. You should be proud of sometimes being let down because it means that you're a realist. I like this especially because I've been doing improv at Happier Valley Comedy for a couple years, and this is one of the fundamental foundational philosophies there is assume the best of the other person. You can't play in a satisfactory way if you are always assuming the worst of people. The other thing is, that's what you get back from people. When you assume the best, you may or may not get the best back from them. When you assume the worst, you always get the worst back. So your odds are better this way. Number two, think in win-win scenarios. Huge favorite of mine, and if you want to learn more, please get in touch with me at working9tothrive.com, and we will have a fun talk about Harvard-style negotiation. Ask more questions. We are not that great about figuring out what other people want, but they are. So ask 
democracy and journalism are usually just one way. They're just broadcast out. And a really good example of this is how they never consult with or interview refugees in a given crisis. They never sit down and ask them, so what's happening with you? They always end up interviewing the people that are mad or the people that are in power. Sharing power is better for all of us, and it's what we all want anyway. Temper your empathy and train your compassion. This was really interesting. Instead of empathizing, which Bregman thinks of, he defines it as seeing through another's eyes. It's really exhausting. And I read recently a very interesting takedown of this idea that you could use virtual reality so that people can see through the eyes of someone's suffering. It is, it doesn't work. It It isn't an effective strategy and it makes our behavior worse. Rather than doing this, be compassionate instead. It doesn't require VR. It doesn't bring with it the exhaustion. And it doesn't make us make stupid assumptions. Often coming from a place of our own biases and our own privileges that we make terrible assumptions. Next, try to understand the other, even if you don't get where they're coming from. This has been a good reminder to me to do this, and it is hard. I can be pretty judgmental of people like anti-vaxxers, but I know that when they are asked questions, they have visible pain and fear. A big one that was studied a few years ago that I thought was very interesting was fear of contamination. The idea that a baby or a child is a pure thing and then is contaminated by a tiny bit of an illness to make them immune and that it's, for whatever reason, very difficult for them to get out of that mindset. But also fear of being lied to, which I'm sure has happened. Fear that the world isn't what they thought it was and that this will lead to more disappointment. Fear of others who are different. Or I have this problem too when people want their reward to be punishment for others. I worked really hard to, you know, pay off college. Everyone else should have to instead of I shouldn't have had to either. I get it. It feels incredibly counterintuitive that prisons in Norway are much more effective and much cheaper and the inmates are treated well. A lot of times, instead of saying we should all have dignity, we should all have a place to live, we are mistakenly led and manipulated into saying, well, I didn't get it. Why should anyone else? And the answer is you should as well. You deserve dignity. You deserve food. You deserve a place to live. And we shouldn't be afraid to have difficult conversations around it. Love your own as others love their own. A nuanced golden rule. Because homo puppy is too vulnerable to clustering fearfully in a clan and lashing out. Almost nothing separates us from a stranger. Genetically, molecularly, even behaviorally. Avoid the news. Yeah, avoid the news. Once you do, your world will improve. The news is meant to sell you things, and it's meant to keep you in a constant state of fear and hyperarousal. And you'll notice now, we don't even get local news. And sometimes what is quote-unquote local news is a city 70 miles away that has terrible problems, but it's as if it's on your doorstep, and it's not. I felt pretty great about myself for doing this years ago. 
But then Bregman mentions social media, and it's true. I have not only not avoided that, I've increased it over the last year, year and a half. And Twitter especially exposes me to news, and most of it is distorted negative, and it is bad for my health, and it is bad for my outlook on the future. The next recommendation is don't punch Nazis. And dang it, this one is hard. I am the daughter of a World War II vet. I always get dopamine when I see a video of someone clobbering a hate-filled Nazi. But Bregman's right. It doesn't, it not only doesn't deter them, they get to bond tighter and attract other Nazis over a shared sense of grievance and martyrdom. Instead, we can do what a town in Germany did. Every year, neo-Nazis would march through the town on Rudolf Hess's birthday and anti-fascists would come out ready to clobber them. Big fights all the time. In 2014, a guy named Fabian Wichmann turned the event into a fundraiser for his nonprofit deprogramming charity Exit Deutschland, which helps people get out of cults, essentially helps them get out of violent cults. For every meter a neo-Nazi walked, Donors would give 10 euros to the charity. People got super, super into this. And they would be cheering the Nazis to the finish line. It was as if they were doing some kind of charity run. It was hysterical. And they waved flags. And they made just buckets of money on this. And it it led to this weird cognitive dissonance for the Nazis. First of all, people weren't screaming at them and they were doing something good that they didn't want to be doing. That's fantastic. And then another year, the same guy gave out t-shirts at a white supremacy rock festival. And when you washed that shirt, the far right symbols disappeared and the shirt said something pretty similar to the ads to get people to lay down their arms in the Colombian jungle. It said, you can free yourself like this shirt and we can help. And it had the website and the phone number for the deprogramming charity and calls to that charity rose 300% just from that shirt. Come out of the closet. Don't be ashamed to do good. Kindness is catching. It feels good, and that is perfectly fine. One of the things we've done a lot of distortion around is trying to think of reasons why charity should be something, why kindness should be something that we diminish or somehow distance ourselves from in ourselves and others. A lot of times people will come up in um, you know Twitter <laughs> and things like that, saying that well there you know there is no altruism. You always do it to feel good. Fine, fine. It doesn't even matter. It doesn't matter if there's anything such as pure altruism or there isn't anything such as pure altruism. Who cares? Do good. It feels good. Do good. It is infectious. Other people will do good when they see you doing good and feeling good. And that is homo puppy. And it's fun and we should celebrate it. Bringing ourselves closer is a good 
and healing thing. Lastly, be realistic because realism is optimism. It's realistic to know that we are cooperative at heart. And it's realistic to know that our deepest human nature is to do well by one another. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Working 9 to Thrive, a show about community, career, and creativity. today is Gabrielle Gould, Executive Director of the Business Improvement District and the Downtown Amherst Foundation in Amherst, Massachusetts. Thanks for being on the show, Gabrielle. Thank you for having me, Janet. You're very welcome. Just so happy to talk to you. Why don't you, so the three things on this show are about career and creativity and community, and they're all sort of weighted the same. Some people overlap, some people don't. But um, why don't you pick one and tell me how you've integrated it into your life? I guess I would start with community because we relocated three years ago, almost to the day, to this brand new community of Amherst. And my career and creativity has sort of poured itself into the community and rebuilding our community post-pandemic. I think mm -hmm. we can all fairly say that we have been in a pandemic for about two years, um, maybe plus on that, unfortunately. So right after we moved here, we sort of went into lockdown and um, coming into a new area with teenagers and, you know, a, a new job and trying to create something and build something um, is a challenge in the best of times. And then going into a global pandemic and a statewide lockdown um, made things even more difficult. But I feel like we've really overcome, I, I've really overcome that career-wise and creativity-wise by building um, Amherst, well, uh, uh, in the process of building Amherst's first live performance and music venue Ooh. in downtown, which is going to be called The Drake, and also laying all the groundwork to do a, a capital campaign to build and donate to the community a outdoor live performance show. Um, so we, yeah, so we've been working like crazy and, and all in a pandemic and all kind of without really knowing anybody. So it's been really interesting to build something creative as a 501c3 nonprofit that has to have a lot of fundraising behind it when you don't know anyone or know the players <laughs> who actually ask for money. So it's, it's been interesting. <laughs> I, that, that description yeah. just feels like walking into a closed door. <laughs> How did you know what to do? Huh? It just sounds like walking um, into a closed door. I think 
you know, I'm really lucky. My position with the Business Improvement District, I have a remarkable and very diverse board of people who were able to sort of help make some inroads. And, uh, you know, most of them are multi-generational Amherstians. And then also our collaboration with the Chamber of Commerce um, in our offices, we, we share a, an office building. That has been invaluable. And their executive director, Claudia, is She's sort of a, a woman who truly champions women and truly supports other organizations. And she has introduced me to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. Um, during the pandemic, we used the Downtown Amherst Foundation as its 501c3 status to create a micro-grant and resiliency fund where we raised close to $500,000 to sustain small businesses throughout Amherst. And that opened a lot of relationships and a lot of doors and sort of solidified the Downtown Amherst Foundation as a brand new foundation, as a capable and compassionate and functioning foundation. So the door felt closed and then you realize how many windows were opening all around the building. That is, that is a nice image. (laughs) And, (laughs) And the foundation. So what's the mission of the foundation? So the mission of the Downtown Amherst Foundation is to build arts and culture as economic and community and destination drivers for the Amherst area. So we really look at this as a foundation that will create arts and culture for the entire Pioneer Valley to thrive with and for. Mm, That's very cool. Yeah. And was that project, was that project sort of started when you got there or did you come in, look around and say... Of the things we could do, this is one we could like start looking at now. So one of the things that was put on my desk was the concept for the live performance shell on the South Common in downtown Amherst, where Frederick Law Olmsted drew it in his plans for all of the green space in Amherst. Oh, no kidding. That had been started by my, oh yeah. Oh, oh my gosh. Um, I know this is a podcast, but we have the most beautiful drawings of his, um, that I'd love to show you sometime. They're really cool. Um, we, the originals are in Amherst, but we we of course just have the photocopies. But right. we're we're very we're very excited to have that because it is such a historic moment and and in time. And and there's such an awesome story about that. He was actually brought here by Emily Dickinson's brother to redesign Amherst College landscape, Ooh. and it, it kind of like for fun he started designing. The rest of Amherst, <laughs> and he is the reason why we have that emerald necklace of green. Kendrick Park was actually all houses, and it was the town and the community that decided to return it to green space, which is now Kendrick Park, wow. based on Olmsted's drawing. So Kendrick Park, Sweetser Park, and the North, South, and Amherst Commons, all of that was Olmsted's original plan for this community, and it's actually all coming together. So long story short, or roundabout way to go back to this is, <laughs> yeah, that's that, so was cool my, that was my predecessors. They did a, I know, they did a contest for designers and architects to put forward designs for a quote-unquote band shell on the common. And the winner was chosen by a committee and by public opinion so it was it was very open to the public and then it just sort of died mm. as as things are wont to do and when I came in and it, it it was sort of thrown on my desk of like oh this is something we've always wanted to do I I was like well you need a 501c3 arm to do this because business improvement districts are generally not c3s 
right. in the tax world or IRS world where C6 is. And there is a difference there that we don't have to get into today. But And the more I started seeing of downtown and the more I started learning about the community and seeing that we had no performance space, no music space, nothing that... We are a, an incredible culturally rich town when it comes to Museums 10, mm. Emily Dickinson, poetry, Robert Frost. Somebody told me that you cannot throw a rock in this town without hitting an author, a published author, <laughs> and that is absolutely true. <laughs> but we have no performance space. We have no art. So my take on this was, okay, let's form a foundation whose mission is to bring this because we all know that if you want a strong, healthy, diverse community, you have to have diverse offerings of music and dance and theater and spoken word. And that's the goal. That is the goal of the foundation is to literally build as much of that as possible and then to become a grant making foundation that gives others the opportunity to build more. So it's, it's a long-term goal but we're, we're well on our way, which is really exciting. It's really interesting because as I look back, I've gone to tons and tons of music in Amherst and it's all been under a tent and some of it has rained and been packed up very quickly. Like I didn't even really think about the fact that, that it, it, it's sort of been thrown together, but for a long time. It's yeah. Yeah. I mean, too long, right? I yeah. mean, it's just, it's, and, and, you know, the bid is the organization that brings the live music to the common in the summer. Right. And I cannot, I, I won't bore you with the numbers, but the expense of bringing in a full stage with lighting and sound, the four Fridays that we dedicate, that we do those in the summer cost us a fortune. And, and it's great because the economic development for our community and for our businesses, it is so well worth it and we love it. But the, the idea that we could build something that would be there for everybody to use without it costing them an arm and a leg. So the local dance troops can use it. Young musicians can book a night on it. And all they have to do is plug into a sound system that's already there. And, and you know, I mean, it's, just, it's, so, it, it's such an exciting factor for this community and such a sort of, you know, way to bring people back together and a way to bring people into downtowns. And I I think, you know, as, as the bid director, I'm looking at rebuilding a community that has been devastated by this pandemic, but was already suffering on many levels, just because, you know, we are all very adept at clicking and adding to cart. (laughs) And Jeff Bezos has your package to you the next morning. So it really, retail has been struggling for a long time. So our take on this and how to rebuild this downtown, downtowns everywhere, is experience and nostalgia and community. Mm -hmm. And if those three can come together, you can regrow a thriving retail and restaurant community on a main street. And and I, I firmly believe in that. Yeah, it's interesting. I even even as you were saying that I was thinking about all the times I have been to other towns that feel the same. Agawam doesn't feel all that different. I've watched things at their band show. East Hampton doesn't feel all that different. It's a little hard to get to their band show because they surrounded it with a traffic circle. 
but stuff that, like there's a centralness to it that I didn't even really clock was missing from Amherst but now that I think about it yeah, oh Greenfield has like a little park with a band yeah. shell in and I've seen tons of not just music but also lots of other arts there and uh and yeah it's all it just it's funny it's funny that it's sort of been a, a glaring omission from a town that is really pleasant to be in like Amherst yeah, could Amherst, not agree more. Yeah, Amherst is a pleasant town to be in. Yeah, it's really beautiful. It's it's got a lot to offer and then we kind of just fall short. So the goal is to fix that and yeah. you know to to what is it? See a need, fill a need. This is the need. Yeah. Well, that's very yeah. that's very cool. It's very cool. It just it seems like yeah, it just seems like filling I don't know it's it's been there invisibly all along in a in a kind of nifty way how will you be able to tell I'm just this is a this is a digression I'm just kind of curious about it is there a metric is there a way to tell not just qualitatively because that's a story that I think is actually fairly easy to figure out that that arts public arts accessible arts is always something that makes a town more livable and more attractive and just more fun frankly but then how do you measure that how do you because that's that's the thing there always has to be both of those both the qualitative and the quantitative is there a way to measure like stuff got better on these axes after we had more accessibility yeah um i mean you can take our summer music series this past summer we did the last two fridays of july and the first two summer two fridays of august and we stopped counting at about five, once we had, we had, we stopped counting at 575 people. Um, I was told to expect maybe 75 people. Oh. And th- what I started focusing on after I was like, forget it, I don't need to count anymore how many people are here. Um, I started focusing on walking around and counting takeaway food bags. Oh. And we held steady all four Fridays at 70% of the people that joined us on the common had takeaway food from one of our downtown businesses. We then went to all the businesses after we finished the series and asked them what their sales were like on those Fridays. And the response that we got resoundingly was it was the first time we had hit pre-pandemic numbers. Wow. So that answers your quantitative right there. So imagine if our, the, the, the Drake will house 240 people standing. And if we're doing concert style seating for certain shows, it'll be 170. Think about 170 to 240 more people coming directly to Amherst for a specific purpose and what they can do before and after those performances. And we will be doing brunch series on the weekends and you know, there will be nights that we do two shows. So there'll be an early show and a late show on ticketed events that people can come to. So it just gives this really wide, wide and exciting birth of making Amherst a place that you are coming to. And I think we have all gotten very used to going to East Hampton, Northampton, Greenfield, even Sunderland has has a, a, a pull on us, right? And I think about when, I go to a concert in Northampton. I go to dinner before. Yep. We go to the concert. Depending on how late the concert is, we sometimes end up at like local burger after. 
you know, and it's like, I think about the money that we spend in that community and in their local stores and, and restaurants. And that is something that aside from the cinema, we really don't have that kind of destination pull. Yes, we have the museums and yes, those are like, I mean, where would we be without Emily Dickinson and Nita Bonesky? Yeah. But the, the desire here is to create Amherst as a destination that happens to be flanked by two of the most fantastic higher education systems in our country instead of a town between two of the most amazing higher education systems. Well, and, and you know, yeah. you know, with that... So what it makes me think about is that this is true of all commerce, but it is spectacularly true of the arts, is that none of this is a pie. Like, it's so easy to think about, like, oh, well, I think about that when I go to Northampton and I end up going to Northampton and I spend money there. But it isn't, that doesn't mean that Northampton gets what Amherst didn't. It's that when there's a lot of stuff going on, a lot of people go have fun. Like, it does mean that, like, when something that's 270 seats is sold out, then you go see them in the other town. Like, it's it's not even a... It's it's like there's a whole myth about competitiveness that... Absolutely. Especially around the arts. And I think about yep. this a lot because right now we're in this weird economic... Like, I don't even know what it is. This weird swamp economically that isn't caused by economic reasons. It's caused by an illness. So there's still this huge desire to... <laughs> there's still this huge desire to, like, get out and go see things. And and once it's over, this push yeah. to, like, be with people and do things. And that's where that, that um, experience and nostalgia come in so strongly. And... I, I find it, it it is interesting that 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 competitive thing that you bring up. It's I, I've always been a very I, I used to run a theater mm. company, and another person came in. Um, actually, one of our board of directors broke off the board and decided that they were going to open their own theater. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> everybody was running around. The sky is falling. The sky is falling. And I was like, wait a second, this is great. Yeah, because you're only going to go see dinner with friends once you're not you know you're you're only going to go see mama mia once <laughs> on your weekend trip somewhere right right so if there's a couple of amazing theater theatrical productions going on that you can enjoy that makes you want to stay longer and i think that one of the things that the berkshires has done so well is there are absolutely people who go to the berkshires to go to jacob's pillow and they only go to jacob's pillow right. there are people who go to the berkshires just to go to mass mocha that is the truth, but the majority, I think, of people go to the Berkshires because there is such an embarrassment of riches of arts and culture there that you can spend a week there and, you know, just keep exploring and enjoying. And the thing about Amherst and and this entire area is we have so much to offer, especially for the outdoorsy types, the, you know, the, the hikers, the climbers, the, the cyclists. Right. Um, we have so much to offer culinary wise, you know, I mean, it's like the farm to table in this entire area is so remarkable. We have so much to offer museum wise. I mean, we just, we have these incredible museums and then, you know, we kind of just fall short outside of Northampton of real, you know, capacity for live music and performance. So 
that's what we're trying to, you know, build. And people will come and they will spend a night in Northampton going to see a show there. And then they'll come over to Amherst and see a show here. And then they'll go to Greenfield and see a show there. So it, it really is that, that rising tide. Instead of coming into this area from Manhattan for a night, maybe people start to come to this area for three nights mm-hmm. because there's just so much for them to experience and do. Yeah, or come a couple times. I mean, yeah. you know, yeah. it is really yeah. interesting. It is really interesting how I've often found that destination organizations or nonprofits, particularly arts nonprofits, tend to not think, it's interesting because the, the, this is a whole, I'm just thinking this out as I talk it, the bid is an interesting entity because of the way that it fills this gap, which is people think about, I want people to come to my organization. That's what I want them to do. But it's rare that they think about what the day looks like. Like if, yeah. if somebody sets out and gets here for 10 a.m. and we're not open till two, what are they going to do between there? And like, what else? Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe they wander around my museum for three hours. That's about right. What else are they going to go do? do and it's funny to think about it It, it's funny that the number of times I've talked to organizations and been like that's that's great you have this whole visitor guide but you didn't you you don't have anything else to direct them to after they've seen all they can possibly see of yours or just get tired and just want to tap out one of the things about tapping out is I remember the first time I took my family to Sturbridge Village and they did a thing where you could apply your, you know, the family going in, the first ticket of every, like the whole ticket of the family to a year long membership. And I thought, oh, hey, I could just leave when the kids are tired and I could come back another time. Wow, that would change everything. <laughs> and it had never occurred to me that we would go exactly. to some place twice. <laughs> Yeah. 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 And yet when you look at, you know, like you think of like the big museums in the world, you know, the, the museum, uh, you know, of his, the, the natural history in New York, it's yeah. like, you can't do that in one day. Right. You know, so it's, it's, we do want to build something that Amherst has more to offer than one day. And yeah. I, and I think that we're doing a really, I, I hope we're doing a good job of that. Well, the nostalgia thing, and you've you've mentioned that word to, word a couple times, and I think it's really interesting. Can you talk a little bit more about how you understand that word? Yeah, so I feel like there's always a pull on on humanity for traditions and for comforts, creature comforts, and whether that's food. It's why we all, you know, why why mashed potatoes and macaroni and cheese are, you know, those comfort food. And I, I feel like watching this pandemic unfold and seeing myself and our children and our friends have to retreat, I think about what is going to pull us back out. Because I, I remember reading years ago that if you do something for two weeks, it becomes habit. Mm-hmm. And this pandemic put us into shuttered spaces for a lot more than two weeks. So mm-hmm. how do we bring people out of that in a way that that is appealing and and comforting and that is where I think nostalgia really plays in so it's it's the band that you heard you know it's why 80s music and and 80s bands are all touring again right it's it's all nostalgia it's why the wonder years is being rebooted 
you know, on, on whichever television station. It's like, how do we create things that bring people out of the shell that we've been forced into and, and bring that joy back? And I think building for the future, but also holding on to the foundation and, and what has tickled us over the years is going to be really important. And I think the more stores and retail that kind of, it's why vintage is, is doing so well right now, right? It's like mm. we, we want to be ecologically friendly. So we're, we, we all like the idea of recycling, but also there's something about those, those patterns and those styles and that throwback that, you know, bring us that, you know, internal joy. It's, it's, and I think it's a very subconscious thing. Mm you know, but when, when you hear, you know, my generation, you know, when I hear like a prayer on the radio, it's like you, you transport, right? So if you start to bring that back mixed with new and innovative, I think it just really gives us a reason to reconnect with our ourselves and our humanity and our friends and our, our, you know, our, our once happy place. Mm. And, and even, even, when it's the sad stuff, it's like, it, it's the pullback that I think is really important. And I think that, you know, coming out of something that has been so devastating and we have seen so much loss and it's, it's not over yet, but I do keep my fingers crossed and think that, you know, we, we are probably heading into, you know, what the scientists are calling endemic and right. we're going to learn to live with this and we're going to learn to be human again, I hope. It's interesting. I I don't know that I would have that that that's that nostalgia. It's funny because I think nostalgia also has a whole easily written off piece to it of like stasis. But I like I like mm -hmm. your I like your definition. And what it reminds me of is something that I don't know if it has much of a term for it. But there was a bunch of architects at Stanford, I think, in the nineteen sixties and seventies who wrote a book called A Pattern Language. It's colossal. It's, it's a book. It's a doorstopper of a book. But what they wanted <laughs> to do was reverse engineer space. So rather than be architects that are trained in a lot of stuff and then make... Uh, they sort of felt like... They seemed to feel like, anyway, I can't speak for them, but that that sometimes architects make a space in a colonizer way, which is I've just put this on the landscape and you have to like it. And instead they went and researched spaces that people enjoy being in all over the world and spaces that people do not enjoy being in and then researched the crap out of them <laughs> to find out what were the elements, what were the pattern languages that, made it so that human beings were in a space that they liked and there are all these things about like the just the depth of tread and rise to stairs which ones make the average human being really happy to be on a set of stairs which otherwise are very perilous for people or why is it no one wanted to be on that whole you know they built that whole area to congregate outside the boston city hall and not a soul went there. Like <laughs> people stayed away, like it was lava. And and well, I, yeah, yeah. And and, and it, what's really sad about something like that is where you're like, did you really have to ask why? Right. Well, and it was <laughs> and it was to try to figure out what they had done wrong because they built it with the idea that oh, this will be like those spaces in Italy, 
And so these architects were like, now why isn't it like those spaces yeah. in Italy? Oh and boy. <laughs> what is it that, what is it that makes those spaces in Italy like places where you linger and have another right. coffee and then yeah. and then do see like a couple people busking and you really enjoy the yeah. music for ten minutes and you know there are spaces we really like to be and I sort I don't know that I'd first use the word nostalgia for them but in a way that's kind of what we were talking about reminds me of yeah yeah I mean I think about you know in in our downtown we're going to rebuild the north common which is kind of like you know a, a really rundown for lack of better word janky parking lot with some very very unhealthy large trees that create so much shade that it's a wood chip mulch <laughs> field underneath and you know you look outside and you know you, you let your eye travel down to the south common and there's blankets and people playing frisbee and they're picnicking right. and then you look over the north common and you know during during covid we were able to throw some picnic tables on it which i guess helps but it's not exactly where you want to congregate and it doesn't take much to look at it and say why yeah. it needs to be rebuilt and thankfully it will be but yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't think there's there's much nostalgia for pulling you back to those places that are just really un, unattractive and unappealing. Yeah, yeah, and you're right. Those are spaces that, I mean, I, even though it's been a long time since I had toddlers, that's kind of my go-to. Like, how hard is it to keep a small child out of traffic in these spaces? <laughs> <laughs> yep. That's kind, kind of the baseline. I'd like to thank Gabrielle for joining me today. Tune in next week for the second half of our conversation and go to working9tothrive.com, that's with the number nine, and follow us on social media.